Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12 this morning. Acts chapter 12, and thank you, Vintage Gospel Lads. Some of you are a little more vintage than the others. That's all right. Acts chapter 12. We're in a series of messages entitled Unleashed, and we've been looking at how the Lord unleashed his church upon the world in the book of Acts. We've already seen how the church had endured arrests and imprisonments and even the public beating of the disciples by Israel's religious leaders. The climax of that opposition was when they stoned Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. Just a stunning act of mob violence against one of the church's leaders. And then right after that assassination, of course, is when the persecution breaks out at the hands of, of Saul of Tarsus. And as a result, the church scattered, left Jerusalem, just scattered. But what looked like a bad thing on the surface ended up being a good thing because the disciples took the gospel wherever they went and they shared it. And as a result, the church continued to grow. And all of a sudden then, the, the church, instead of meeting in the mass at the temple courts, since they were being persecuted, began to meet in smaller groups and small secret-type settings. And even though the Christians fled from Jerusalem, the apostles stayed there. It just seemed like they were untouchable. But then when Saul converted to Christ, as we saw in Acts chapter 9, it looked like the worst was over and the church would return to a time of peace and growth. But it didn't last. Because Herod decided to use his dislike of Christians to his political advantage. Herod Agrippa had recently been granted authority over Judea by Rome and he hoped to win popular support from the masses of Jews by picking on the Jesus movement. That was pretty easy to do after Christians began to fellowship together again, and especially after they allowed Gentiles in their midst. So the first thing Herod did was to have one of the prominent apostles arrested and beheaded. James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, was killed. And when Herod's approval rating bumped up 10 points, he arrested the top leader of the Christians, Peter. Herod thought if he did Peter in and killed him, then he could get a real political bounce. This time he wanted a public trial. He wanted to maximize the attention on himself and maximize the political gain. But he had to wait a week because he arrested Peter at the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Jews aren't going to participate in any kind of execution or trial during a holy week. And so all week long during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Peter is there rotting in a prison cell under maximum security. He had four squads of four soldiers that watched him around the clock. Two of them were chained to him at all times, and two of them were at the door of the prison cell. Now Herod had probably heard how the apostles had escaped from prison before, so I doubt if he's taken any chances this time with Peter. Meanwhile... The church did the only thing that it could do. It prayed. If you look at chapter 12, verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Prayer didn't seem like much in the face of Herod's power, but it was all they had. And despite their earnest prayers, nothing happened all week long. Things really Looked hopeless for Peter. But finally, the night before his trial and execution, God took action. He sent an angel 
And Peter was sleeping so soundly that the angel could hardly wake him up. He had to strike Peter on his side, just get him to wake up. The, the Greek wording there indicates had to hit him pretty firmly. <laughs> had to really shake him up. And when he awakened, Peter was disoriented. He thought he was dreaming. Saw a bright light shining from a man on fire that told him to get up. And when Peter stood up, the chains fell off of his wrists. Do you think that was a little bit noisy? And yet the guards didn't awaken. They remained sound asleep. And then the angel walked Peter through every step. Verse 8 says, The angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And the two of them walked through the cell door, past the two guards without incident. Finally, the big iron door of the prison opened like somebody had pushed a garage door opener. And Peter just found himself walking the streets of Jerusalem alone. I think, don't you, don't you think Peter just had to pinch himself? Is this really happening? Am I seeing a vision? In Acts chapter 10, Peter had that vision of the great sheep being lowered from heaven with all kinds of creatures. And he was told to kill and eat. He must have thought this was another vision until he came to his senses, realized, I'm free. I'm free. So what should he do now? Well, don't stand on the street, Peter, because those guards are going to come looking for you when they find out you're gone, because their life is forfeited if they let you escape. So they're going to be looking, so he couldn't stay there, so he decided to go where the church usually met. When he got there, he was stopped at the door because it was shut. It was locked. He knocked on it. A servant girl came, comes, comes. Her name is Rhoda. And uh, when she says, who's there? Peter says, it's Peter. And she's so excited she doesn't open the door. She runs back in to tell everybody Peter's at the door. But they don't believe her. They just don't believe her. Reminiscent of the women reporting the resurrection of Jesus. No one believed their message either. The church told her either she was crazy or that it must be Peter's angel, implying that he was already dead. When they did finally open the door, they screamed and shouted for joy. Peter had to restrain them. I mean, after all, he's in hiding. And so then he explained what happened. He told them to get word to James, the brother of Jesus, and the rest of the church. And then Peter left. He fled Jerusalem until things were, last, were less dangerous. And believe it or not, that's really Peter's last big scene in the book of Acts. Now while things are going well for the Christians, things are not going so well for Herod. Because the next morning everything is prepared for the big trial, you know, that would win Herod more praise from the anti-Christian masses. And people are gathering in the courtyard. But he noticed that his servants are a little bit nervous. Finally, someone told him Peter had escaped. While Herod is furious, he demands an investigation. And finally, he has the soldiers responsible for watching Peter killed, just like they knew he would. Herod was so embarrassed and so frustrated, he left Jerusalem. And so in verse 19 of chapter 12, it says, After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together, sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, 
They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne, delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. So Herod got what was coming to him. He died a slow, painful death. Historians date this to about 44 A.D. Josephus said that Herod suffered for five days before he finally died. I mean, I've never experienced it, but if you read Josephus, nothing hurts quite like a fatal case of intestinal worms. Herod learned the hard way no one messes with God and gets away with it. Now, in stark contrast, the gospel that Herod had tried to stop wasn't harmed at all because verse 24 says, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Back in 1776, Voltaire wrote these words. He said, 100 years from today, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by some antique seeker. A hundred years after that, Voltaire was dead, and his house was used as a printing press for Bibles, and were stored there. Listen, folks, you can ridicule, you can arrest, you can kill Christians, but you can't stop the church that prays to God Almighty. Now, you look back at this story, and you have to admit that there's humor in it. I think the humor is obvious. The angel treated Peter like a child. Put on your shoes, Peter. Put on your coat. Now get up. Now come with me. I mean, treated him like a child. Peter was shocked to realize that he wasn't dreaming. I mean, especially once he finds himself standing in the street. Rhoda left Peter at the gate while the church debated if he was at the gate. Peter walked out of his chains and the door of the prison flew open because of an angel but yet he couldn't get into the house where the church was praying for him because they thought he was an angel. And below the surface, there's this deeper humor. Herod tried to kill the church, but ended up getting killed himself. He sought the glory of a god, but ended up getting killed by worms. The story began with one church leader killed and the spokesman in jail. It ended up with the spokesman escaping and the tyrant dead and the church growing. Now, why all that humor and irony? For this reason. When human beings try to act like rulers of the world and oppose God, it's comical. It's comical. Psalm 2, the first four verses, says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Folks, there's nothing more comical than mortals trying to sit on God's throne. It just doesn't work. And there's nothing more tragic than a church who forgets who does sit on God's throne. Our God sits on the throne, and because of that, 
The church has amazing power through prayer. But we struggle to believe that. Even though the church here was praying for Peter, once he shows up at the door, they struggled to believe that it was really him, that he was free. Heard about a little town that didn't allow alcohol to be sold in its city limits, but a tavern opened anyway. So the church had an all-night prayer meeting that God would, would close that bar. That very night, lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. Well, the bar owner sued the church, claiming that their prayers were responsible. <laughs> the church argued it wasn't responsible. The judge said, no matter how this case comes out, one thing's clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer. The Christians don't. Well, in this story in Acts 12, everything the church might possibly have prayed for had come to pass. Peter was comforted in prison, sleeping so soundly the night before the execution. And he was delivered and lived, you know, for years afterwards. Herod faced justice. His threat was removed. The good news continued to grow and spread throughout the world. It was amazing how God had answered the prayers of the church, even when the church struggled to believe God could or would do what they had prayed to have happen. And it makes me wonder, has the church really changed in that regard? Do we believe in prayer? Oh, we may say we do and give it lip service, but do we really? Would New Hope Christian Church be considered a praying church? Or do we struggle to believe in prayer and that God will really answer us when we pray? Dan Bouchel, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says we struggle to believe in prayer for four reasons. Number one, a lack of understanding. I mean, why didn't God rescue James? Why didn't God rescue Stephen? And we've all received no's in prayer, and sometimes they're very hard to explain. Sometimes we get a no because we're asking with the wrong motives. James chapter 4. Sometimes we get a no because we doubt when we pray, James chapter 1. Sometimes we get a no because it's not in accordance to God's will. Jesus prayed in the garden, what? Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. And then there's times when there's no apparent reason why we get a no. The truth is, folks, we don't know how prayer works, and it just drives us crazy. Prayer is not like a Coke machine where you put in coins, push a button, and get what you want. Neither is prayer like a slot machine where if you put in enough coins and keep pulling the lever, you'll occasionally hit a jackpot. Prayer isn't mechanical at all. Prayer is an appeal to a living God who has his own plans and has greater knowledge than we do. And sometimes we doubt because of a lack of understanding. Sometimes we, we struggle to believe in prayer because of a lack of control. Why hasn't God rescued Peter yet? He waited until the last possible moment. Why does he do that? We like what it says in James 5, verses 16 through 18. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. We like that. We ask, he answers. And, and, and we're not patient. 
But we forget that when Elijah prayed for the rain to return, he had to pray seven times before it happened. Seven times. The issue is not will God act, but will we pray until he does? We don't just want God to answer. We want it on our schedule. And when we demand what we want on our timetable, we are not trusting God. We're instructing him. And that's not faith. Which is the third reason why sometimes we struggle with prayer. A lack of faith. I mean, how can God save Peter? He's chained between two soldiers. There's four squads of them. There's two at the door. There's no way he can get loose this time. And sometimes we're afraid to ask God for anything that we can't make happen by helping God. As if he needs our help. We don't want to have to make excuses for God. Folks, God does not need the church to defend him. He needs the church to trust him. It's as simple as that. Even when he says no. How many times do we pray without really believing that it's going to do any good just because, well, that's the Christian thing to do? I'm thankful that God is not limited to the strength of our faith. And then sometimes we struggle with prayer because of a lack of practice. Yeah, a lack of practice. Unlike these Christians in, in Jerusalem that were just praying continually for Peter, we just don't pray much at all. Prayer should not be a last resort. It should be a first response. But too many times we're like the man with the terrible illness who asked the doctor, is there anything that we can do? And the doctor said, well, we can pray. And the man said, oh dear, has it come to that? A last resort? No. When do our churches meet to pray? Tell me. We meet constantly for worship and instruction and motivation and, and interaction and fellowship. But what about for supplication? What about for intercession? We usually have meetings just for prayer only in a crisis situation. And yet the church will not have real power until it grabs hold of the only real source of power that we have. And that's God Almighty. John Bunyan once said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. That's good food for thought. And I'm grateful that here at New Hope, we still have a prayer meeting. If you didn't know that, now you do. It meets every Wednesday night at 5 o'clock. Except this week, because there's a preaching rally or something going on, okay? But yeah, every Wednesday night at 5 o'clock, we still have a prayer meeting. It's basically a small group. When everybody's there that usually attends, we may have 9 or 10 people. Now listen, if we truly believe all things are possible with God, why aren't there many more that would make it a priority to come and pray together? If we're not coming together for the purpose of prayer, can we in any way be regarded as a praying church? And individually, we really don't do much better. Most surveys indicate that the average American Christian prays three minutes a day or less. Preachers are a whole lot better. Twice as good. <laughs> Maybe six minutes a day is what polls say. Wow. 
Dave Butts, in his book, Forgotten Power, Dave died this past year. He said, if you want to do a quick self-evaluation of how your church is doing in prayer, there are several areas to examine. And I quote, he said, look at your calendar. Important things in your congregational life are on the calendar. If prayer isn't there, it isn't important for your church. Look at your building. Is there a prayer room that has any use? Are provisions for prayer made in your worship center? Like it or not, your building says much about your priorities. Then look at your budget. Is there a line item for prayer? Your budget speaks volumes about your congregational priorities. If you aren't spending money on something, it doesn't have a high value to your church. There's food for thought. Paul Bilheimer, who's an author, says it this way, A church without an intelligent, well-organized, and systematic prayer program is simply operating a religious treadmill. And the real danger of prayerlessness is pride. Because when prayer is not front and center, we begin to think that whatever is happening that's good in our congregation is the result of our efforts, the result of our great ideas, our, our great marketing. We so easily forget the words of Jesus in John 15, 5, that apart from me you can do nothing. Failing to pray is failing to trust in the Lord. And in his strength, Ronnie Floyd in his book, How to Pray, makes this profound statement. Prayer occurs when you depend on God. Prayerlessness occurs when you depend on yourself. And when prayer is used simply to open and close meetings, we're walking in the pride that says, we can do this ourselves, Lord. We'll let you know if we need anything. Wow. Now, I don't doubt that there is still spiritual power in the church today. Lives are still being transformed by the preaching of the gospel. The church is still being used by God to make a difference. But there is so much more that could be happening. And when we look at these believers in the book of Acts and these, this church that was praying for Peter, the difference in the levels of power to today, to me, seems obvious comes down to a biblical principle written by James, the brother of Jesus. You have not because you ask not. And we've got to face the fact that it's only through the power of God that we'll be able to stand against the onslaught of ungodliness that has come upon us in our world today. And in the culture in which we live, if we're not a people of prayer, we'll sink. Prayer in the book of Acts was not window dressing, folks. It was not just a way to open or close meetings. If you read through the book of Acts, you will find more references to prayer in the book of Acts than in any other book of the Bible. From chapter 1 on, they prayed when they had to re replace Judas. They prayed one time for boldness to preach the gospel, and, and the place where they were meeting was shaken. They prayed. What did they do in Acts 6 when they selected the the seven deacons, the apostle said what? We will give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. It undergirded everything that we see in the book of Acts. And what congregation wouldn't want to see that happen in its midst? If we want to see power, we must see prayer. Sidlow Baxter once said, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, and despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers.
And so we need to join the Apostle Paul as he prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with what? What? With power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have what? Power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work where? Within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. I'm done preaching. What do we need to do? Pray. Is it not easy to see the application today? We need to pray. So let's pray. And pray without ceasing. And pray nothing doubting, because he that doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. James says, let not that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And please, I know what people mean when they say this. We believe in the power of prayer. And I believe they mean that in a good, positive way. But let's be careful that we just don't believe in prayer for prayer's sake. I believe in the God who can answer the prayers. He has the power. All power. Let's pray.